As we stand, let's pray together. Awake, my soul, and sing. Lord God Almighty, we pray that in the hearing of your word today, our souls may not only be moved to sing, but our hearts to care for a world that knows you not, and our lips to speak to those who know you not. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please sit. Well, Nigel, at the start of our service, welcomed our visitors from Sweden. And I echo that welcome. It's not the only Swedish connection for today. Just after the sermon, uh, Chris Hall will be leading our prayers. Chris starts with us on Tuesday as a lay pastoral assistant. He's lived in various places and is half Swedish. Uh, So you can get to know him after our service. Something of a Scandinavian connection. But there has been grimmer news this week from Scandinavia. Anders Bering Breivik is judged sane and is sentenced to 21 years in prison. Knowing exactly what he did, he murdered 77 people, and at his sentencing, he offered an apology to all militant nationalists that he had not killed more people. This man is sane. But what if we could turn the clock back through his life and find the moments that twisted him towards this hatred? What if we could isolate those times when that dark bitterness entered his soul? And what if we could pour into his life at just those moments the grace, the mercy, the love of God in Jesus Christ? Is there, could there be, A problem in this world that is bigger than the grace of God. Well, as St. Paul starts this letter, he considers that the answer is no. Not love is all you need, but grace is all you need. And that comes through even at the very start. I asked for the first ten verses to be read, to set something, to set it in context, but we're only today going to look at the first five verses. And then we'll pick it all up again later after our holiday club service next Sunday. So would you please turn to page 1168 in your church Bibles, in the seats in front of you or at the end of the pews up top. Who is he writing to? Well, they are the churches of a Roman area in Turkey called Galatia. Paul, the apostle, and Barnabas had undertaken mission there in the early years of Paul's work, about uh, 20 years after Jesus died. So still within living memory of those who would remember Jesus. And just uh, so you get a sense of where this is, if you think of the southern line of the coast of Turkey and go roughly to the middle of it and then strike inland, you come pretty quickly to the valley in which Paul and Barnabas preached to the towns of Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. They also went even further inland 
to the town there of Antioch. It's confusing because there are two Antiochs in the Bible. There's one in Syria and there's one in this area of Turkey called Pisidian Antioch. And a short while after that mission, Paul now picks up his pen uh, to write to them, or probably picks up a secretary. And he does, we know that because he writes at the end, now I'm writing in my own handwriting. So he's, he's, he's dictating. And he does so, he writes to them because there's already trouble. Opponents of the message he preached have arrived, and they're saying something different. More of that in other weeks. But it explains how he starts. In these opening five verses, we really learn two things. Firstly, who is this man? Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man. One of the charges against Paul is that what he'd been preaching was just a rehash and a pretty bad rehash of what others had taught him. No, he says. That's not how it was. Later in the letter, he's going to defend the journey that he took and what he got up to. Here he just says, I'm an apostle. That means one who is sent, and I'm an apostle from God. It's not from man. It's not by man. It's from Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul's own story, in case you've never heard it, is uh, of one who was a fierce persecutor of the Christian faith as a Jewish leader, a Pharisee. But on his way to Damascus to persecute those who were becoming Christians, to persecute this new grouping, Christ met him on the road and stopped him and called him to be a witness to those who are not Jews, the Gentiles. His calling is divine, his commission is divine. So his message, he says, is true and authoritative. That's why this comes first, before he then adds uh, in uh, verse 2 that there are others with him, the brothers, he's not alone. And sent not just from God either, but rather from God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. That's not an empty phrase, it's going to matter, though I'm actually going to store it up to look at a little later. But that then is the answer to the question, who is this man? That's the first thing. It sets up with full divine authority all that he wants to say that's coming. And no more than in his day can we then say, well, yes, but uh, fair enough, but uh, Paul, we 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 think you've got most things right. You hear that sometimes in churches. We think Paul got most things right, but he's just a bit harsh. He he didn't get everything right. Well, either he did or he didn't. Either he had divine authority or he hasn't. And if he has divine authority, then it's all right. And if he doesn't have divine authority, why bother with any of it? He sets up with full divine authority everything that's coming. And what is the second thing? I mentioned there are two things. Who is this man is the first? What's the second? What is the gospel he preaches? What is the message he proclaims to the churches in Galatia? Well, the answer is one word, grace. Now, we have in verse 2, sorry, verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, It's actually not quite that. It's grace to you. And peace. Doesn't make a huge amount of difference. But the, the, the point lands on the grace word. Any old letter in Greek, 
just like you might write a letter. Remember writing letters? Um, uh, any letter that you might write will, have, will perhaps end, you know, love and kisses or something. And just like us, they would have said the same, but they'd have said it at the beginning. And they'd have said the word greetings. And the word greetings was the word chiron. So at the beginning of any old Greek letter, you'd expect to see the word chiron. But Paul takes it and twists it and says charis. Not chiron, but charis. It's a pun. He's playing with the word because he wants to use the word grace, charis. It's a rather dull word, just greetings. And pretty much everything else that Paul wants to say in this letter comes under that one word, charis, grace. Now, for some of us, it's a very familiar word. And it needs very little explanation. But it's going to be a huge word in significance through this series. So it's worth spending some time there, especially for those for whom it may not be familiar. And it matters because the Galatians are accepting a gospel that denies the grace of God. And the way I want to kind of go into it is via the Old Testament. God's love for his people is often enough described as his chesed. And that means his steadfast loyalty to those he has said he will love even though they rebel against him. Although they may act in every way contrary to his will, he will maintain his hesed. And now grace in the Old Testament is that same love, but now extended to all peoples, even though they've all rebelled against him. And that love isn't simply a feeling, it has acted. Verse 4 tells us that in Jesus Christ, God gives himself for our sins. We're told again and again that sin cuts us off from God. Jesus gives up his life. He is cut off from God, though he is sinless, so that we will never be cut off from God, though we are sinners. And that explains one of the simple phrases that's often used, you may have heard it, to remember what this word means. We get the riches of life, but it's Jesus that pays the price. So, grace, G-A-R-R-A-C-E, great riches at Christ's expense. And the cross of Christ, where the price of sin is paid, where Christ is cut off so that you and I shall never be, that cross brings us and peace with God. Because otherwise we would be at war with God. God in his holiness cannot dwell with those who are sinners. Sometimes one has the impression that people might like it if God would say, there, there, Uh, your sin, it it doesn't matter. Everyone's the same. You're you're all sinners, so look, it's silly for me to make a big deal of it. There, there, it doesn't matter. But I haven't haven't, uh, warned him. Let let, let me just pick on Colin Cratch for a moment. Let let me imagine that I I want to say, uh, or that let's imagine that Colin is a sinner. Uh, uh, and, and, and would like God to say, there, there, it's okay. But how can it be okay? Because if he is a sinner, he's hurt other people. He's probably hurt people here. And if he's hurt people here, it's not right for you, if you've been hurt, to hear God say to him, there, there, it doesn't matter, because it matters to you. Our sin hurts other people for whom Jesus died. So how can God say, it doesn't matter? 
The hurt that sin brings matters. So something must be done about it for Colin and for every single person here and every single person walking past and every single person rather hoping it turns out nice later to get to the beach. How can God just blandly forgive my sin? A a, a price for that hurt has to be paid. Christ pays it. There is peace in Christ. God has made peace. Now that will be familiar to many, but perhaps unfamiliar to some. And if you've never heard it, I urge you to pay attention. It's at the heart of the good news from this apostle, the authoritative word from God. You cannot get beyond that good news. God has done what you could not do to bring you into relationship with him. Indeed, left to yourself, you rebel against God's ways. But he loved you before your rebellion and has done all that is needed even while you've been a rebel. That's grace, and it's at the heart of the second thing here. Who is this man, Paul the Apostle? And secondly, what is his message, the message of grace? God in Christ has done what's needed. It's not difficult to explain, but its implications burn through human history. What if Anders Bering Breivik had woken up one day and fully understood the grace of God in Christ? 77 people would be alive now. And yet, and yet, even that is too thin a thing if that is all that grace is, the forgiveness of sins. I want to go back into the text and find something we may have not have noticed so much. Because to say everything I've said is not the end of grace. And what else needs saying may come as something of a surprise. Because I take it that we want so to understand grace that not only our souls will awaken when we sing, but so that we have something to say when we leave this place. And I've seen so many followers of Christ become dumb when faced with the challenge of speaking grace. And even in this larger church, I suspect we do not know what to say. See, in Paul's day, nearly everyone with whom Paul was concerned as he travelled round knew what the problem was. The problem was, the question was, sin. The Jews had one way of dealing with it over their generations, a complex system of animal sacrifice. And so much of what Paul has to say here and in other places is either to persuade outsiders for the first time that Jesus is the one true sacrifice for sin, or to plead with existing believers not to be distracted from the truth that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice for sin. Paul could face his world and his church with material about sin, and they understood the language. And I suggest our world does not. Our world is familiar enough with wrong and evil and blame and fault, but not with sin, not with a sense that in the wrongdoing of the world, a holy God is offended. So if we go from here into the world, knowing that the problem is sin and Jesus is the answer, then we do not know where to begin. Because we're beginning with those for who don't speak that language. We may have understood that grace is about sin and God's merciful response. But it's not where the world starts. 
And I fear that we who know the gospel of Jesus Christ are not as effective as we should be in the world, largely because we don't know where to start. It's like the old story of the uh, Irishman who wanted to get to Ballycuddy and was told, oh, if that's where you wanted to get to, I wouldn't be starting from here. Consider the lives of the people you know and care for who are not here and who will not be here next Sunday or the Sunday after. I will bet that you have never spoken to them and started from sin. I would bet there are lots of conversations perhaps where you can just about manage to say, I just find that God is a help, to which the answer can come back. Well, that's nice for you. I don't need that. And so we're stuck again. We're dumb again. Our culture used to know about sin, but it has faded more and more from the public scene. And I honestly believe that what I've described is the biggest challenge to each one of us in our individual evangelism. Many of us are of a generation and were taught that the question is sin, but that's not the question out there. And we kind of sense, therefore, that we are stuck and we don't know what to do about it because we know that the question really is sin, and we're right. And that's really the reason why I wanted to get us stuck into Galatians in these weeks. Even in these few verses now, we get huge help. Now, to see what I mean, look at verse 4. For practical purposes... And according to what many of us were brought up to think about grace, would it matter if verse 4 read, who gave himself for our sins according to the will of our God and Father? It would have sin. It would have substitution, Christ for us. It would have the will of God. It would have all the touchstones of what we believe grace is about, great riches at Christ's expense. But it wouldn't have to rescue us from the present evil age. And for practical purposes, I suspect we think that bit doesn't matter. That's Paul just flanneling. And alarm bells should go off whenever we think there's a bit of Scripture that doesn't matter. Paul is claiming so much more. He is claiming that in the middle of this evil age, we live as those already rescued into the new age coming. And that is what grace is fully about. I promised I'd revisit verse 1 as well. What is it that Paul says there about Jesus? The first time he has a, uh, the Jesus on his lips, as it were, in the letter, that he was crucified? No, that he was raised from the dead by God the Father. Rescue, of which Paul is talking, does not mean a sort of halfway stage in which the past is forgiven. Rescue was not fully achieved when Jesus died. Rescue is when Jesus Christ is raised, raised to be Lord, as he's called in verse 3. Rescue is when the past is forgiven and we are transferred into the kingdom of the future, which happens to be living in the present. The kingdom of the new age started in the resurrection of Jesus but will only be complete in the future, and we living in this present evil age are already part of that age to come. There is a rescue, but it is a complete one. It is not enough to throw you a life belt on God's part and to drag you to the side of the boat. 
Rather, you are hauled out of the water and safely landed back where you didn't think you'd be again. There is no imaginary halfway point where we are forgiven from the past, but without content for the future. When Jesus is raised, the new age of his lordship invades the present evil one, coming under his dominion. We're rescued from the past and planted into a different life by his spirit. New life has a shape to it. The Christian life has a shape to it. It comes, that whole topic, late, quite late in this letter. But that's why it's in this letter. I met a man this week who gave up on the Christian faith. But he returned to it when he saw the love of a Christian congregation for a sick relative. He saw kindness, goodness, patience in action, words that are important later on in this letter. I'm not going to go too far into that. But we must not speak of forgiveness as though it has no pointers to the future, no shape for the future. And that future is enormously attractive to those out there who, though they may not use the word sin, know that this is an evil age. They have read the papers. They know about Anders Bering Breivik. And if we find that our lips are locked up because we know that the answer is forgiveness, but no one is asking the question, then Galatians may be a book for us. It will insist on forgiveness. It will not downplay that. Galatians is Paul's first stab at explaining the complete and total grace of God in forgiving our sins. But these opening verses are already richer than that point alone. This evil age remains evident in all its power and wickedness, but we are rescued to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and his new age within this present one. Perhaps we don't think about that so much because it means pointing to the new age. It means pointing to the life of believers, pointing to the life of the church. Perhaps we feel awkward or embarrassed about so many things that have gone wrong. But think of that man persuaded by the love of believers. There is more to have confidence in than we may have thought. But it also means necessarily that we must look to ourselves and to our fellow believers to live out the shape of the new age. And one of the things we've picked up, the wardens and myself particularly, in this church over the last couple of years, really, is that people want guidance on what the shape of Christian life might be, the lifestyles that reflect the work of the Spirit. Of course, we will come to that later too. Why, after all, does God do any of this? Why does he send a man, Paul? Why does he, through Paul, offer this message to the world in Galatia. Yes, it's for you and me. Even more so, it's for Jesus. But most of all, it's to bring glory to himself from the whole creation. And that's where we get in verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. As the problem besetting us is solved so spectacularly. Not, not my little problem of sin, important as it is for me and for me to know it's forgiven. But the problem of the ages, 
the problem of a present evil age and a new age that is coming with Jesus Christ raised as Lord, as the problem is solved so spectacularly, then it is seen that the world has been made and then astonishingly redeemed and glory and glory will be to God forever and ever. It's not surprising, he says, amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, bring to you the feelings of guilt, I suppose, that many of us may feel, knowing that we know Jesus Christ, knowing that we are sent by God to bring that message to the world, and yet knowing that we feel so feeble as to how to do it. Lord, from the resources of your word, we ask that you would change our minds. Make us creative as we recognize from your word the full richness of all that grace means. And out of that creativity, give us words that will speak to a generation for whom sin is just a joke just uh, something on the front page of the tabloids. This age is evil, and we know it. We know how that age passes through our own hearts too. Yet in the middle of it, you have raised Jesus to be Lord and called us to serve him in that new age. So grant us your spirit to serve him in this week in a day of play and a week of work. May we find him to be Lord for us and discover ways in which he can be Lord for others, that to him may be the glory forever and ever. Amen.